Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. And Bradley, would you mind hitting the lights for me? You are so good at that. Thank you. Yeah. Good job. Did it again. He's on a streak now. That's like two times that he has not turned the projector off for me. Matthew 17 says, For with the judgment that you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There is this very biblical concept, this biblical principle. It's called measure for measure. Ever heard of that? Yeah. And so we, we find ourselves in the story of Joseph in, in Genesis chapter 46 today, where the family of Israel is being led down into Egypt. And that depresses me because the family of Israel is not supposed to be in Egypt, right? That's not the promised land. Why are they going down into Egypt? Well, of course, we talked about this the other day because God needs to fulfill his promises that he promised Abraham, your descendants would go and they would, they would be oppressed and then he would bring them back out. Number two, the Canaanites that are living in the land of Canaan, their iniquity has not run its course yet. And then number three, we talked about how God wants to bring some Egyptians out of Egypt with the Israelites when they, are, when they exit, right? But the fourth reason, and one we didn't discuss last week, was this, measure for measure. What happened to Joseph in his life? 17 years old, he's betrayed by his brothers, he is sold into slavery where? Egypt. He is bound. And he becomes a slave down in Egypt. He is exiled from his family against his will. So the measure for measure principle says that that must happen and that must fall on the same people who perpetrated that crime. That they must be bound in Egypt. They have to go to Egypt. It's measure for measure. But guess what? God is faithful. He told Abraham that would happen. And he also told Abraham that I will bring you back out. Right? And I will bring others with you, as he did. Sometimes in our own walk, we have a lifestyle or we make a series of choices that are sinful, that displease God. And then we repent of those choices. We repent of those decisions. But we forget sometimes that it is measure for measure. And sometimes we have to spend the rest of our lives experiencing the consequences of those decisions that we did repent from, that we did confess of, but the consequences are still there. And I've met many of believers who will say, why am I still dealing with the consequences of my actions and my decisions and my sinful nature or whatever back then? It's because it's measure for measure. You have to live with the consequences. Now, you have eternal security in knowing that God has redeemed you and saved you and you will be with him in his kingdom. Sometimes you have to live with the consequences of those decisions. And you can turn that around and use it for his glory. Now, not always. Sometimes God can completely redeem that situation and those circumstances. And he can completely turn it around. But what we see here in this passage is absolutely measure for measure. If you have your Bible, go to Genesis 46, and we'll talk about that real quick. Genesis 46. We're almost at the end of Genesis. It's been... A year-long journey through Genesis. And we're going to cover two chapters today. It's two for one today. We've got a lot of ground to cover. That fan, Nicole, that fan is blowing my pages of the Bible out of... My, my binding has come loose, and I'm sorry. I'm like... I haven't last week. It's like, things are blowing around here. Yeah. 
chapter 46, Israel took everything he owned. Now, Israel is Jacob. There's another name for Jacob, right? With him on his journey. And he arrived at this place called Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Jacob. Or God of his father, Isaac, I'm sorry. Now, what do we know about Beersheba? Well, Beersheba is a very important place. It's right here. You see my laser pointer right there. Beersheba is still about a 10 to 11 day walk journey to, to, to Egypt where he's about to take off and go. But what do we know about Beersheba? Why did he stop in Beersheba? Why did he make sacrifices here? Why was this a pit stop for him? Any, any thoughts? Yeah. Well, I know it was the place of Abraham's wealth. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, double, I think there were two wells. So I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah. And that's where all that controversy got started between yeah. Abraham's servants and the servants of Lot. Right. So Be'er is, means the well. Be'er is a well, right? Sheva is an oath or it's seven, the number seven, okay? So what do we know about Be'er Sheva? Well, Isaac built an altar in Be'er Sheva in Genesis 26. Jacob had his dream about a stairway to heaven after leaving Be'er Sheva. And like you pointed out, Be'er Sheva was named Be'er Sheva because Abraham dug a well there and he had a, an issue with Abimelech, if you remember that. Be'er Sheva was the territory of the tribe of Simeon and Judah. Later we'll see in Joshua 15. The sons of the prophet Samuel were judges in Beersheba. Saul, Israel's first king, built a fort there for his campaign against the Amalekites in Beersheba. And the prophet Elijah took refuge in Beersheba when Jezebel ordered him killed. And the prophet Amos mentions the city in regard to idolatry. We're going to see Beersheba plays a very essential role in scripture. And it's still there to this day. It's a, you know, many thousands of years old. It's a city. It's the capital city of the Negev. It's got a population right now of about 200,000 people. And it's growing rapidly. They're projecting it to be uh, double that in a matter of several years. Um, but Beersheba is a, is a, I'm not going to dwell too much longer on Beersheba, but it's a very important place. And that is why I just wanted to show you why Jacob stops there and has this kind of this sacrificial service with God and communes with God. In verse 2, it says, in a vision at night. Now, this is the Hebrew word mara. I hope one of these markers works. Ma, uh, I think it's Aleph. Hey, let me check my spelling real quick. Mara, I just don't. Yeah, that's the right thing. Mara, and it means it's actually. Um, I heard once one person say it might be where we get the word mirror. Mirror. Mara is like a vision. Um, it's it comes from the root ra'e or re'e, which means to see. Yeah, some of you said that. Good. Re'e means to see, okay? So there he's having a mirage. It may be where we get the word mirage from. You know what a mirage is when you're in the desert and you see something that's not really there? So a mirage is like a vision, right? It's used in Exodus chapter 38 when talking about the furnishings in the tabernacle. It's used talking about the, the looking glasses, the, the mirrors. It's used as a mirror. So he's there at a vision at night and God called to Israel, Jacob, Jacob, Yaakov, Yaakov in Hebrew. And he answered, he named me. Now, you guys know all about this phrase, here I am, he named me. Um, the, the, the phrase is very loaded. It means I'm ready for whatever you have in store for me. He named me. Abraham says he named me twice. Esau says it once. Jacob says it once. Joseph says it once. Jacob says it once. Again, and then Moses is going to say it. Remember that at the burning bush? He named me, here I am. It's a very loaded phrase. I'm ready, I'm surrendered to your will. Verse 3, he says, 
I am God, I am Elohim, the Elohim of your father. And do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why would he have fear in his mind about going to Egypt? He's going to a place that has lots of food. He's going to see his son who he thought he was dead. Why would he be afraid? Well, number one, you remember each of his fathers, his grandfather, they went to Egypt and bad things happened, didn't they? He doesn't want that to happen to him in Egypt. He doesn't want to repeat what happened to his grandfather. Also, he knows the, the prophecy given to Avraham that I will bring your people down to Egypt and they will be forced in, into forced labor. He knows that. He's aware of that. So naturally, he's afraid of that. But did maybe Jacob here believe that this was about to happen in his day? That he was about to be forced into labor in Egypt? It was a trap or something? But God reassures him and says, no, it's part of my will. Go to Egypt. It's there that I will make you into a goy gadol, a great nation. Not only will I go down with you to Egypt, but I will also bring you back here again. After Yosef has closed, or literally it says in Hebrew, has put his hand over your eyes. Which is a, an idiomatic phrase, meaning he has, he, has, he has ushered you and helped you into death as you die of old age and natural causes. So God's speaking very comforting words into Jacob's life here, saying, don't worry, you can go. You're going to link back up with Joseph. You're going to reunite with him. And he's going to be there at your deathbed. And I will make you a great nation. And we know the concept of Mitzrayim, Egypt, is a place of constriction. It's a place of troubles, isn't it? It's actually, um, Sarah is, means troubles. And the word, actually the word for hornet, the insects that sting, is, is Sarat. Sarat. It's like, a, and then the, the, the skin disease that afflicts your, you know, the leprosy, as it is in English, it's Sara'at. Sarah is a trouble. So Mitzrayim is the place, Mim in front of it, is the place of those troubles. So I'm going to send you there. You're going to grow into, I talked to you a couple weeks back, it's like the picture of a womb. You're, you're, you're going like a seed into the womb, and you're going to grow and you're going to reproduce. So Yaakov left Beersheba. And the sons of Israel brought, now literally it says they nasa, they nasa, nun, shin, aleph in Hebrew. Nun, then shin, or sin, and then aleph. They nasa. What does nasa mean? It means to carry. Carry. And it's a beautiful picture that's being painted here. That the brothers, the same ones that betrayed Joseph, the same ones that had no, no regard for their father's uh, well-being or his, his, his love of Joseph. They were jealous, right? What does it say that they carried? They're shepherding their people once again, like they should have. They carried their family. Or in other words, in Genesis um, 13, 6, this, this verb, nasa, is used, it means to sustain, to sustain. So they're acting like the shepherds that they were supposed to be long ago. So we see that transformation in the brothers. They're shepherding their family into the land of Egypt. They're sustaining them on this journey. Now, the, the, the word shepherd in Hebrew is what? Does anybody know? Ro'eh. Ro'eh. Can you guys say Ro'eh? Ro'eh. Yeah, it sounds like Roy, but it's not. Ro'eh. Stacy wanted to name one of our boys Ro'eh, shepherd. And I was like, but if you do that in the South, people will say Ro'eh, Roy, like Roy. Roy, they'll think his name is Roy. And I was like, I don't want to do that. 
but Ro'e, and it comes from the, 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 the root Re'e, to see. A shepherd is a watcher. Now the Latin word for shepherd is a pastor, uh, like to pasture something. It's where we get the English pastor from, right? And there is this very um, strong warning in the book of Ezekiel chapter 34, where God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel and warning the shepherds of Israel, telling them they better get their act together because they are living and sustaining themselves off of the flock. But they are like acting like wolves when they should be shepherds. And that's why to be a pastor or a shepherd is such a heavy responsibility. And James says not, not all of you should do that or be that because it comes with a stricter level of judgment. But anyways, they're acting like shepherds. They're acting, they're, they're bringing, they're carrying them down. The father and their little ones and their wives and the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry them. And they took their cattle and possessions which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and they arrived in Egypt. Yaakov with all his descendants with him. His sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his da uh, granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with them into Egypt. And these are the names of Israel's children who came into Egypt. Yaakov and his sons. Reuben, Yaakov's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben. Now, there's a long list of names here, and I'm going to read these names. If I can read them without messing up, or if I can read them with messing up, I deserve a round of applause, okay? <laughs> the sons of Shimon were Yamuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yahin, Zohar, and Shaul, the sons of Kana'i, the son of a Kana'ani woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Chatz, and Marari. The sons of Yehuda were Er, Onan, Shelah, Peretz, and Zerach. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Peretz were Hetzron and Hamul. The sons of Yisachar were Tola, Puva, Yov, and Shimon. The sons of Zebulun were Zered, Ilon, and Yachleel. And these were the children of Leah, whom she bore to Yaakov in Padan Aram, with his daughter Dinah. And some, his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of God were Siphon, Hagi, Shumi, Etzbon, Eri, Arodi, and Ere Eli. The children of Asher were Yimna, Yishva, Yishvi, Beriah, and their sisters Serach. The sons of Beriah were Haver and Malkiel. These were the children of Zilpah, who Laban gave to Leah his daughter. She bore them to Yaakov, 16 people. The sons of Rachel, Yaakov's wife, Yosef and Benjamin. To Yosef in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asnat, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Eshbel, Gera, Naaman, Achi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupim, and Ard. These were the children of Rachel, Rachel, who were born to Yaakov and some 14 people. The sons of Dan, he's the easy one, was Hushim. The son of Naphtali was Yachsael, Guni, Yatzer, Shilim. And these were the sons of Bilhah, who Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. She bore them to Yaakov and some seven people. Wow. Did I get through them? Okay, thank you. All right. Yeah. Thank you. It was a little bit delayed, but I'll take it. You know, I'll take whatever I can get. All the, <laughs> all the people belonging to Yaakov coming into Egypt, his direct descendants, or in other words, from his yarech, from his, his loins, were not counting the sons of uh, Yaakov's sons' wives. They totaled 66. And the sons of Yosef born to him in Egypt were two in number. 
Thus all the people in Yaakov's family who entered Egypt numbered 70 souls. That's profound, right? So they're already up to 70 people. Now 70 is a picture of, of the nations, right? The 70 nations of the earth, a picture of, 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 of the, the kind of a prophetic foreshadowing of the monotheistic faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going into the Gentile world and being spread through this seed that is going to be planted in the womb of Mitzrayim. Now, turn with me over to Exodus chapter 1 real fast. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but how many people went into Egypt? I know Xavier's squirming right now. <laughs> now look at Exodus 1 verse 5. All told, there were how many people? Exodus 1, verse 5. Everybody there? It says, all told, there were 70, 70 descendants of Jacob. Okay? Look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 22 real quick. Deuteronomy 10, 22. Deuteronomy 10. I'm saying that for myself over and over. 10, 22. It says, your ancestors went down into Egypt with only how many people? 70 people. Okay? Now, let me take you to one more verse. Go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. I'm in the wrong place. Chapter 7. Do you remember Stephen is about to become the first martyr of the faith of the Sekhnonastha Way? He's about to be stoned. He's retelling the history of Israel, and he gets to this part of the story that we're landing in in Genesis chapter 46. It says, Yosef then sent for his father Yaakov and all his relatives, and it was how many people? Seventy-five. Seventy-five. Oh, we have to throw out the whole New Testament. It's, it's erroneous, isn't it? It is not inspired by God. Acts 7.14. There is an error here. So we have some options. Either we throw it all out and say it's not divinely inspired, that Stephen was just mistaken and, and it's wrong and there's contradictions in Scripture. You know, we could say that. Or we could say, um, you know, that maybe it's, maybe it's good, but it's not really divinely inspired. Or maybe Stephen was nervous because he's about to I actually heard one, uh, one, one pastor one time say that Stephen was about to die and he just got the number wrong because he's nervous. Maybe. Uh, that's a possibility. The other options would be um, that the Septuagint, the Greek, ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, does say 75 in Genesis chapter 4, or sorry, Genesis chapter 46. It could be, and there's actually two uh, Dead Sea Scroll fragments of the book of Exodus that will say 45 as well. I'm sorry, 75, thank you. 75. A lot of numbers going around. So which is it? Here's my answer. It's likely either Stephen was a student and utilized the Septuagint as his Bible, because he was a Hellenized Greek-speaking Jew, if you see in Acts chapter 6, and or he is just counting differently. And he is, he's counting different people in a different way. And Xavier put together a great study, which he can send it to you if you want, which actually reconciles that and shows who is Stephen counting in addition to the 70 people? So it's very easily reconciled. It is not an error in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is not just making a blunder. He wouldn't do that. And Luke wouldn't preserve him. It's easily reconciled. So don't throw out the New Testament and don't let someone tell you to do the same, okay?
So I hope that kind of inoculates you to some of the attacks that people will make against the New Testament. But let's move on. I'm going to read all the names again. No, I'm just kidding. Chapter, I'm sorry, verse 28. Yaakov sent Judah ahead of him to Yosef in the la in, in the, so that the latter might guide him on the road to Goshen. Thus they arrived in the land of Goshen. Now remember, Goshen comes from the, the, the adjective gosh, which means to be close, to be near. And Yosef prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet Israel, his father. He presented himself to him, embraced him, and wept on his neck for a long time. Then Israel said to Yosef, now I can die because I have seen your face and I've seen that you're still alive. So Yosef said to his brothers and his father's family, I'm going up to tell Pharaoh and I'll say to him, my brothers and my family, father's family who are who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds and keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all their possessions. Now when Pharaoh summons you and asks, what is your occupation? In other words, he's saying in, in Hebrew, he's saying, what is your ma'asecha? Your ma'asei your ma is what are your deeds, your actions. Ma'asecha are like your actions, your deeds. So he's asking them, what are, the, what are your deeds? What do you do? And tell him, your servants have been keepers of the livestock from their youth until now, both we and our ancestors. This will ensure that you will land in the, live in the land of Goshen. For any ro'e, any shepherd, is, it uses the, the Hebrew to'evat, are like an abomination to the Egyptians. Chapter 47. Then Yosef went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers have come from the land of Canaan with their flocks, their livestock, and all their possessions. Right now they are in the land of Goshen. So he took five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Now five is a number of what? Grace, Grace yeah. And there's five books in the... Torah. Yeah, so maybe this is talking prophetically about some of the leaders of the world embracing the, 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 the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the instructions of the Torah. He presented them to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your ma'asecha, your deeds? And they answered, Pharaoh, your servants are ro'e son, which is a, a shepherd of like a flocks. Both we and our ancestors, and added, we have come to live in the land, because in the land of Canaan there is no place to pasture your servants' flocks. The famine is so severe. Therefore, please, let your servants live in the land of Goshen, the land that is near. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt lies before you. Have your father and your brothers live on the best property in the country. Let them live in the land of Goshen. Moreover, if you know that some of them are particularly Competent. Now the Hebrew here is um, chet, yud, chet, and then a lamed. Does anyone, my Hebrew scholars in the room, know what this says? Chayil. If anyone, if any of them are chayil, what does chayil mean? It's where we get Proverbs 31 woman, the eshet chayil. It is the competent woman, the valuable woman, uh, the woman that is capable. The warrior woman is kind of how some people translate it. The woman that is ready for anything, ready for battle, ready to, to go out and to, to do business. And if you read Proverbs 31, you'll know. But he's asking if any of them are chayil, put them in charge of my livestock. So Yosef brought in Jacob, his father, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob replied, the time of my stay here on earth has been 130 years. They have been ma'at, 
In Hebrew, ma'at, and we have a tet. Ma'at, what does ma'at mean? It's, it means insignificance, and it could also be like meaningless. You see, Jacob's reflecting back in his life and saying, my life is a mess. My days were like they were profitless. They didn't really mean much in the grand scheme of things. They're inconsequential. He said they, they have been ma'at and they've been ra. Ra, which is like resh, resh, and then an ayin. They've been ra. That's where we get the word. And actually he uses the plural, ra'im. They've been bad. <laughs> they've been evil. Right? Think about his life. Rewind his life and think about all the, the crazy trauma and dysfunction he's had to walk through because of the decisions he has made, the decisions his sons have made, and the famine and everything else. He said, fewer than the years of my ancestors have lived. In other words, he's saying, my lifespan has been shorter because of all the stress I've had to deal with. Then Yaakov blessed Pharaoh in his presence. So Joseph found a place for his father and his brothers and gave them property in the land of Egypt, in the best region of the country, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. And then Joseph provided food for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household, taking full care of even the youngest. And there was no food anywhere, for the famine was very severe, so that both Egypt and Canaan grew weak from hunger. So Joseph collected all the money there that was in Egypt and Canaan in exchange for the grain they bought and put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. When all the money in Egypt had been spent and likewise in Canaan, all the Egyptians approached Joseph and said, give us something to eat, even though we have no money. Why should we die before your eyes? Joseph replied, give me your livestock. If you don't have money, I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought Joseph their livestock, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, their flocks, the cattle, and donkeys. All that he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they approached Joseph again and said to him, We won't hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the herds of the livestock belong to my Lord. We have nothing left, as my Lord can see, in our bodies and our land, except our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and buy our land for food. And we in our land will be enslaved to Pharaoh, but also give us seed to plant so that we can stay alive and not die. And so that the land won't become barren. So Joseph acquired all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh as one by one the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine weighed on them so severely. Thus the land became the property of Pharaoh. As for the people, he reduced them to serfdom city by city from one end of Egypt's territory to the other. Only the priest's land did he not acquire because the Kohanim, the priests, were entitled to provisions from Pharaoh. And they ate from what Pharaoh provided them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, As of today, I have acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you to sow in the land. When the harvest time comes, you are to give 20% to Pharaoh. 80% will be yours to keep for seed, to plant in the fields, as well as for food for you and your households. And your little ones. And they replied, you have saved our lives. So there's all the known Gentile world proclaiming. And it says in the New Testament, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, Yeshua, is Lord, right? And here we see that happening. But also we see the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams, don't we? When all the sheaves of grain are now bowing to Joseph. As he's accumulated his power and his notoriety. He said, when har verse 24, when harvest time comes, you are to give 20, already read that, verse 25. They replied, you have saved our lives, so if it pleases my Lord, we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Yosef made a law for the country of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have 20%. Only the property belonging to the priest did not become Pharaoh's. 
So Israel lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and they acquired possessions in it, and they were productive, and their numbers multiplied greatly. And that's the end of Torah portion, Vayigash, and now we're moving on to the next Torah portion, because you gotta remember in ancient times, there was no chapter or verse markings in the Bible, in a Torah scroll, there's only Torah portions, which are divided by a little bit of space in between the ink on the parchment. Now we're entering a new Torah portion that would have been read on a different week in the synagogues from ancient times, it's Torah portion Vayihi, and he lived. And that's why it sounds repetitive or redundant. It's saying Jacob lived in the land for 17 years again. You see that? Thus Jacob lived to be 147 years old. And the time came when Israel was approaching death. So he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If you truly love me, please put your hand under my thigh and pledge that out of consideration for me, you will not bury me in Egypt. Why? Because he knows the promises of God. He believes in the resurrection. And he wants to partake in the resurrection in the land that God promised to his ancestors. Rather, when I sleep with my fathers, you are to carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. And Joseph replied, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear it to me. And he swore it to me. And then Israel bowed down at the head of his bed. Which means, basically, he's giving up his last breath. Now, I want to bring your attention real quick to verse 28. It says, verse 28, and actually we get back up to verse 27. Israel land, lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. And then in verse 26, 28, it says, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. Did I say 28 or 17? I think I said 17. So we got this 17 and 17. Now, Joseph lived with his father in Canaan for how many years? He overlapped with his father in Canaan for how many years before he was betrayed and sent into Egypt? Anybody know? 17. Yeah. Now he's overlapping with his father again in Israel for how many years? 17. You see the perfect bookend? 17 years overlapping in Canaan. 17 years overlapping in Egypt. Now it just so happens that Joseph was how old when he was sold into slavery? 17. And I think God's trying to tell us here that there is something about the number 17 that signifies victory, and it signifies overcoming, it signifies resurrection. Now, I don't want to creep anybody out. I'm not, numbers and math, they, they weird me out too. Um, and even there's this concept of gematria, where the, all of these Hebrew letters right here, they are also numbers. There is no different numerical system in biblical Hebrew like we have in English. These are all numbers as well. So I could take these words like ra'ah and I could add them together and get a total number. Or I can multiply them and get a total number. Now there are people that will take this concept and they will build an, an entire false religion off of that concept of gematria. And they take it to the extreme and they do things that are like actually, that are actually like borderline heretical. All right, I'm not here to do that today. But there is a grain of truth in taking certain aspects of, the, of biblical Hebrew words and adding them or multiplying them and see, comparing what else has that numerical value. Maybe there is a connection there. That's a very like rabbinic thing to do. Um, but the number 17, like I mentioned, is the, the, the number of victory, the number of, of resurrection. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some cool stuff here. Abraham lived to be 175 years old, right? If you take 175 and you factor it out, you've got 5 times 5 times 7. And what is 5 times 5? It's 175. But if you take and add those 5, 5, 7 together, you get what number? 17. Isn't that kind of cool? There's a connection there, maybe. Now, let's look at Isaac. He lived to be how old? 
180, right? Now guys, this is all over the internet, okay? I, I didn't do this research myself. This, you can fact check me later. But six times six times five is the factor. But if you take six plus six plus five, what do you get? 17, right? Isn't that cool? There's like a connection there. Who's the next patriarch? Isaac, or Jacob, sorry. Jacob, 147 years old, right? Is what he lived to, based on the math we just read. Factor that up, seven plus seven plus three is what? 17, yeah, 17. So you see the number 17, he's like 17 overlapping in Canaan with his father, 17 overlapping in Egypt with his father. You take the ages of all those guys, you factor them out, add those numbers together, you get 17. It's really, really fascinating to me. You take the number 17, and you take all the digits in the number 17 and add them all together, what do you, what do you think you get? 153. Now, anybody who's a, a New Testament scholar would say, okay, 153, that sounds familiar, right? Or someone who's read their Bible. But, does anybody know 153? They know where that's from? It's, it's the numerical value of the Hebrew word ha-pesach. What does Pesach mean? The Passover. The Passover. Now, 153 is also the exact number of fish in John chapter 21 when he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore and it had how many fish? 153. Who was the individual in the Torah who was tasked with building the tabernacle and all the furnishings? Do you guys remember his name? I heard somebody say it. Beit Salel. If you take all the letters in his name and add them up, you get 153. So there's a connection between this number 17, a number of victory over sin and death, and triumph over sin and death, and 153. What is the connection? Well, it's Messiah. It's pointing to the Messiah. Now, Yeshua was the Passover lamb, right? He takes away the sin of the world. On what day of the month did he rise? On what day of the month did he raise from the dead? He died on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, or Aviv is sometimes called. He rose how many days later? Three. So on what day did he rise? 17th day of the month. Isn't that fascinating? The, the word Jerusalem can be found 17 times in the book of Psalms, by the way. But there's 17 appearances of angels in the New Testament, right? 17 is that, that number that's saying, I am victorious. And we're supposed to look at this story and see that the Messiah will come and he will conquer sin and death. That Joseph isn't him, but he will be like Joseph. He will come like a suffering servant and he will restore the family back to the father. And he will, he will then be a, they will then be a light to the nations, okay? Through the judgment of those nations. Now, Romans 8.35, I love this passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, count them with me, hardship, too, persecution, famine, or nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. I was quoting from the Psalms there. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You hear the language of triumph there? Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor powers, neither height, nor depth, I forgot to highlight those ones, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is made evident through Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. 
How many things is Paul saying cannot separate us from the love of God? 17 things. Now, I don't know if that's just coincidental or what, but or he's being purposeful of that. But Acts 2.24 says, It was impossible for death to hold him, Peter says. Because Peter knows that he was triumphant over the grave. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is a waste of time. Your knowledge of Scripture and, and your keeping of the commandments or your whatever you want to do, it's if, if Yeshua did not really defeat the grave, it's all pointless, right? And you are still lost in your sin. But, in Revelation 1.18, Yeshua says, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and hell. He's victorious, isn't he? I think that's what we're supposed to pick up on here as we read Genesis 46 and 47. That yes, they're going down into Egypt. They're going into a place of despair and they are desperate for bread. They're starving to death. But guess what? God's going to protect them. And yes, he will judge the nation of Egypt and he will shake the kingdom of Egypt. And in doing so, his people will be born. They will burst through the water and they will come out a newborn nation. And then... Even some of the Egyptians will go with them. The mixed multitude will go with them. And if that's not prophetic, a prophetic picture of something that's to come, I don't know what is. Now, the Western world, I believe, I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime or your lifetime, but the Western world, Western civilization as we know it, will be and is maybe even starting to be shaken to its core. And it will crumble. The United States of America, while we had a very good run, and while I love this nation so much, anytime I leave the country and come back, I'm grateful that I live in this nation. It is not God's promised land. We are living in Egypt, and we are the mixed multitude that will say, that is my God. Those people worship the one true God. We have to be prepared to put our shoes on our feet and our belt around our waist and our staff in our hand, and get out of town. Now, I don't mean like get out of town, get out of town, maybe. But detach yourself. Now, for, for, for decades now, leaders of this nation have realized that if they can tether your faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to American nationalism, that they can, there's a very powerful force there. You got me? Now, again, I love the United States of America. We have done some great good. We have done some great evil. But detach your faith. You are to live, as the New Testament says, as foreigners and strangers in this land. So that when the shaking of the United States of America happens, and it comes, and it is coming, you will not be shaken. You will be children of salt and light. And much of that is, is more, more so a spiritual preparation than it is a physical one. Okay? But people will give up their rights. And people will give up their liberty. People will give up their faith for two main things in the United States of America. Security and convenience. And we're going to see that time and time again in the United States of America. And right now it just seems like we're, we're nearing a crossroads where there is, number one, an accumulation of wealth and power in the United States of America that is beyond comprehension. We've never seen this before. But also we see, we look through history and the falls of, of great civilizations in history. History is there for us to learn from, right? 
if we look through, there's there's a couple common themes that we see. There was a there was a sudden shift of looking inwardly at self and the desires of self. And actually, especially in Rome and in Greece, there was a, a, um, an obsession with sexual desire towards the end of those empires and those civilizations. There was an obsession with sexual desire and fulfillment. But there was this deep like confusion and introspection all about me and my desire, right? A complacency as well. Then we also see at the fall, around the fall of great civilizations in history, an invasion of people coming in and taking advantage of the security of the nation and it being too many people on the lifeboat and bringing it down, okay? Now, I see every human being made in the image of God. If they cross the border legally or not, they're made in the image of God and I am to club them, I'm to lay my life down for them. But I'm just stating facts and economics here. The United States of America is on a trajectory right now that is unsustainable. Something may change. But guys, a candidate, a political candidate who is running for office to be whatever position will not save the United States of America. What will? God pouring out his spirit and us turning our eyes toward the king of kings and saying he is our savior. He is our redeemer and he's coming again. Now, a candidate, a, pol a politician, may prolong the shakening. It, he may buy us some time, or she may buy us some time. But God knows the end from the beginning, right? Just detach. Love the nation. Be engaged in the nation. But remember, live as, as foreigners and sojourners in this land. All right? Now, some lessons I learned from this we see the conclusion of this cycle that's a very biblical cycle. We see sin of the brothers. We see discipline. We see a humbling. We see a confession. We see repentance. And then we see restoration of the, of the family back to the Father. And you will see that in your own lives or the lives of people around you. That there is sin. There is discipline. And then you see this in your kids' lives too, right? Confession, repentance, and restoration. If any of those steps in this process of restoration get out of order in any way or are skipped altogether, bad things happen. Bad things happen. Um, Romans 3.23 says, all have what and fallen short? Sin and fallen short. Everyone in this room, right? I want everybody, if, if you want to write these verses down, for the sake of time, we're not going to go verse by verse. I, want to, I meant to pass these out to everybody. But these verses speak to this cycle that we see in the book of Genesis. And this cycle is kind of wrapping where you take a picture if you want. Just don't get me in the picture. But guys, let me, let me stress to you that if any of these steps get out of order, go back and go back, start back at square one and do them in order. Do them in order. Encourage others to do them in order. So often we see, we see people come under sin and discipline and then they just go right to restoration and say, okay, I'm, I'm good. But they don't have that humbling experience. They don't have that confession experience. But God is good and he is faithful. He'll be faithful to his people Israel as we see here in the story. As we see in the future, he will be faithful to his people Israel. And he will test the allegiances of everyone around Israel. All eyes will be on her in the coming days. With that said, I want to. We have like five minutes. Maybe we'll do Q and A. If you have a comment or question, yeah, Suzanne. So, 
Sorry, my bad, guys. I'm sorry. So you did a great job of a lot of things, but especially in showing the problems of Egypt in the Old Testament and the picture of it being a curse rather than a blessing. However, that being said, there are those that also teach that one of the reasons possibly that in the end of days there's this prophecy given of Egypt being saved yeah. is because Egypt, although it has been a curse, it has also been a blessing. In the Old Testament, it was a blessing in the sense of the source of the food through, you know, Joseph and other things. In the New Testament, <clears throat> Yeshua and his parents, where did they go? They fled to Egypt. Yeah. Egypt. Yeah. And it was a source of blessing and yeah. salvation and safety for them. Yeah. So there's a lot of other things. Yeah, it's always been an awkward relationship so, between Israel and Egypt, right, in Scripture? It's and interesting. It, it has a sense of blessing as well as person. Yeah. So it's Absolutely. And may possibly be why there's that prophecy given that Egypt shall be saved in the end of days. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So, Howard? Back it up one more? Yeah. Sure. Wait, there it is. Okay. Anybody else have a question or comment they want to share? Uh, I know it's for visitors, it's kind of weird that we do that, but we do that just to give people a chance to ask questions or comments and. I don't always know the answers, but I rarely know the answers, actually. But I try to see a lot of cameras to edit me out. Anybody else have a question or comment? Well, everybody's quiet today. All right, let's go to Genesis 48 then. Let's do it. All right. Well, don't forget, uh, women's Bible study is... Let me go forward. Okay. Women's Bible study is uh, tonight, discipleship... Uh, not tonight. This afternoon from 1.30 to, to 2.30. And then youth night from 6 to 9 at the Bennett home, Okay. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll do the blessing over the fruit of the vine and bread. Abba, Father, I thank you so much that you are faithful, and that your word is true, and it is, is being proven out to be true, even in our day here, some 3,500 years later after these events transpired. And Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to stand in front of your bride and your flock and teach the words of God, Father. And I just ask that you would try my heart, that you would test me, Father, and you would Humble me in all things. Father, we just ask that your, your leadership right now in our congregation, that you would just work in a mighty way through us, that we would be humble and be obedient in all things, that we would be an embassy of your kingdom that is to come. We would be an embassy of that kingdom in Dothan, Alabama, that people would see people of all nations and all tongues. They would see love. They would see peace. They would see reconciliation. They would see worship of you. And they would see the word going forth and not returning void. I thank you that Yeshua is returning. And may it be soon and in our days, Father. We long for his return. We long for a righteous king in this world. And I pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Amen.